in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, which is the spur of the breath of the Buddha, one of the um, interesting paradoxes of that teaching is that most of them have life. And there's a very striking example of the Buddha. Some, some counselor of a king comes to the Buddha and wants to know what will happen if they attack these certain people. And the Buddha doesn't answer about the people and how do they live their life, this other thing. You know, do they do this? Do they do that? And if they do this, then they will, uh, they will have well-being for a long time. And so the counselor gets the message because these people live in a certain way, it's probably better to... A very, very interesting piece there because Buddha never says, don't do that. But what he does is give an example of what a wise life looks like in those examples. And then it becomes clear to him that he's going to die in a certain amount of time. He goes to all his monasteries and all the places of practice where all the nuns are to all the Spirit Rocks and IMS and Mid-American Dharma and all the various places, you know, Vipassana, Hawaii. And, and he gives his teaching. And the teaching he gives, who knows he's dying, is summed up in this phrase that's used over and over again. It said, but the Buddha went here and he taught, this is morality, this is concentration, this is wisdom. This is morality, this is concentration, this is wisdom. And what those three lines summarize is the path that the Buddha outlined. This is uh, morality or ethical conduct, concentration, which is focused attention or focused awareness, and um, Wisdom, which is understanding, realization. And what's striking also that this is his last teaching to to the people who've been studying with him, the practicing with him for many years, or to people who are just met him right now, is this is the same teaching he began with 45 years before, when he had his awakening and then he gave his first talk. He taught the Four Noble Truths and the path that leads to freedom. And he describes it quite beautifully um, in this teaching. He says, Just as if a person traveling through the forest should see an ancient path traversed by people of former days and going along it, one should see an ancient city having gardens, groves, pools. And that city came to be restored so that it became prosperous and flourishing. Even so, I have seen an ancient path traversed by the enlightened ones of former times. And then he teaches this path, which is the Eightfold Noble Path, which has three baskets ethical conduct, practice, focus, awareness, and wisdom or understanding. And so the eight pieces that he teaches are, um, and in the, in the wisdom basket is right view and right aspiration. So right view and right aspiration are in the wisdom basket. Um, right speech, right action, right livelihood are in the basket of ethical conduct, how we live our lives day to day. Um, the aspect of the basket of practice or focused awareness is right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And these have to do with cultivating an awakened heart or awakened mind. And he said, along that ancient path I have gone and going along it, I have come to fully comprehend that way going to the ceasing of aging and death. 
which is a metaphor for freedom. Now I'd like to reflect with you, speak with you about this path, investigate this Eightfold Noble Path, not so much in the specifics, which I mentioned, the you know, right understanding, right aspiration, right uh, action, right speech, right livelihood, right effort, right concentration, right mindfulness. I'm not going to go into detail about the specifics so much, but I'd just like to speak more generally about what it means to enter a path, this path, and to hopefully stimulate your uh, curiosity about your own relationship to the path. So a more literal translation of what we translate as the Eightfold Noble Path is a noble path of eight limbs. A noble path of eight limbs. So it's kind of nice because it, um, it starts to fill it out a little bit when we think of it as eight limbs. And often spiritual life is spoken about as a path or the other uh, main metaphor you'll hear is a way. Um, actually, the Buddhist teachings is uh, many times called the Great Way, capital W. And it's a helpful metaphor because it lets us know, as the Buddha describes so beautifully, is that there is a way through the difficulty of human life that has already been walked by others. We don't have to create the path. We don't have to, you know, whack it out in the jungle. There's actually already a path that we can um, discover that's been, uh, that we get to enter um, in connection with other human beings who have walked this path. Um, we get to um, enjoy their work, the grace of their work. We don't have to cut down every tree or bush. You know, that there's, you know, when you really walk through a path in the woods, it's quite beautiful. You know, it's really been stepped on. And you can feel the presence of others. And you can feel your connection with them as you walk through a path in the woods. And so when we really begin to feel our sense, ourself on the path, that sense of really being connected, we're connected to the power and the grace of the lineage of human beings who seek awakening, which is maybe the most noble of human endeavors that has been occurring ever since human beings, I think, became self-reflective at all about their experience. Now, let's look a little bit at some of the problems of this metaphor of path. The first problem that I reflect on is that it's um, usually taken quite linearly. The path is linear. It goes from here to there. Um, and that's helpful to some extent. But um, another a metaphor for the path instead of a here-to-there metaphor, is much more uh, the image of the Dharma wheel. And you'll see it on the flags uh, along the road at Spirit Rock. You know, it's round, and there's a, a hub, and then there's the eight limbs coming outward. And I think that's a, a, a slightly more accurate metaphor um, because it starts to point in every direction. It's not just one direction. The path is in every direction. And what I like about it is usually the center is empty. So it's pointing us at the source or the deepest truth, but points that that truth goes out into every direction of our life and our action and our understanding and our motivation. Now, I'm pretty sure Sylvia sometimes says this, I think I read this in her book once. She talked about the Eightfold Noble Point. 
So that even this idea of uh, Dharma wheel and the limbs going out is a little too much. That where the path begins and ends is right here. And so I could just point to each of you that um, it's not a path in terms of coming and going, but a path in terms of realizing the Four Noble Truths. So that if you look at this, uh, the core of the Buddha's teachings, what he teaches is that there's suffering, and this is to be understood, that there's a cause to suffering, which is to be released or let go of, and there is the cessation of suffering, which is... um, to be realized, and then there is a path that allows for this to happen. And so really walking the path is to understand suffering and let go of its origins and realize freedom. And so the path we walk is right here, is us in that sense. We are the path. This is from one of my teachers, Hamid Ali, who said, the desire for freedom, for liberation, for enlightenment, or self-realization, inner development, whatever it is called, is not a response to a call from outside of you. The search is a very personal concern, an intimately personal interest in your own situation. It shows itself as a questioning of the disharmony you live in, the suffering that brings us all to practice. The stirring must come from you, from your depths. You can use a system to help you, but ultimately it is your life and your quest. The path is you, your mind and your heart. The call or the path and the real the call, the path and the realization are all very intimately personal concerns. The quest does not bring about an improvement or a perfection. It brings about a maturity, a humanity, and a wisdom. Now Ajahn Chah, Jack Cornfield's teacher, he put it even slightly uh, in a more simple way. He said, traditionally the Eightfold Path is taught with eight steps such as right understanding, right speech, right concentration, and so forth. But the true Eightfold Path is within us. Two eyes, two ears, two nostrils, a tongue, and a body. These eight doors are our entire path and the mind or heart is the one that walks on the path. Know these doors, examine them, and all the dharmas will be revealed. So this is a little bit the the reflection I want to bring to you, that we are the path, that this is where we walk the path, and this is where we discover the fruits of the path. And... My friend uh, Ryokan, the wonderful Zen poet, put it even more succinctly. He said, Buddha is your mind, and the way goes nowhere. Don't look for anything but this. If you point your cart north when you want to go south, how will you arrive? It's, it's actually hard for us to get that. The Buddha is your mind and the way goes nowhere. <coughs> the simplicity is difficult for us. It's actually right here. There's so many uh, expectations <coughs> of where it is and what it is and what it should look like. And it's just befuddling, at least it befuddled me for a long time and still to some extent, that, oh, this is really it. That the Buddha actually sits here. 
And that to walk the path means to simply realize that, not as an intellectual idea, but as the truth of the way things are. So when we understand that there is no path separate from ourselves, we can talk about the path more fully. Okay? Now, another important consideration or a piece to reflect on when we talk about the path <coughs> is about the word right. Remember, the path is made up of these eight limbs, right understanding, right aspiration, right action, right speech, right livelihood, right concentration, right mindfulness, right effort. The, the piece that we often don't reflect on is what does right mean? You know, we look at the various um, details which are really important to reflect on, but I think it's also very important to reflect on this word right. Yeah, the Pali word is sama. And it has many, I've seen many definitions of it. Thich Nhat Hanh talks about it in this way. He says, right means in the right way, true, authentic, straight, or upright, not bent or crooked. So that you don't have bent mindfulness or crooked concentration. Or... But really what he's pointing to here, and he goes on to say, he says, is a kind of directness that really allows us to realize what we're exploring, whether it's mindfulness or aspiration, understanding. Um, And discovering the benefit of that. He says, right and wrong are neither moral judgments nor arbitrary standards imposed from outside. Through our own awareness, we discover what is beneficial and what isn't beneficial. And I think that's a really skillful understanding of right about what's beneficial, right, in that sense. You know, um, when we sit, how much concentration, how much awareness, the balance of the two, how much effort, what, what kind of effort is beneficial? If you notice, at least for myself, when I first started practice, I was a little... You know, I was a young man and kind of macho and, you know, effort, strong effort. Mm, going to sit through anything kind of effort. Um, and, you know, and that has its place, its time, uh, at least for a while. It's not a great effort throughout the life of practice. There's something I found much kinder, much more re- a relaxed effort. That really seems to serve over a lifetime of practice. And that's a wonderful um, kind of effort to explore, examine, to discover for oneself. I find it very beneficial. I looked up the word right in the dictionary, in the Oxford English Dictionary, and it said, and it actually had one of the definitions was pertaining to a way or a course, which is what a path is. It said, direct, going straight towards the destination. Um, appropriate, exactly answering to what is needed or suitable. And so really seeing clearly what's appropriate and what will um, facilitate our goal, the goal of awakening. What will facilitate living a wise life? What kind of speech facilitates that? How do we respond appropriately to the various vicissitudes of life so that we bring uh, an embodiment of wisdom and compassion. They also talked in the dictionary about write um, more as a verb in terms of writing uh, something that's out of balance. So like a boat, when a boat is, you know, goes too far to one side or the other, it needs to be righted. And that's a very helpful way to think about right in terms of the Eightfold Path. To find the balance of effort, the balance 
of concentration and mindfulness, the balance in livelihood, in speech. You know, even though the Buddha emphasized truth in speech, he didn't say always say what's true. He said say what's true in the right time, in the appropriate time, when it's in balance, when someone can hear it. So discovering the optimal relationship with life to realize awakening. And also kind of to uh, a sense of recovering one's balance and equilibrium, which I think is very helpful because sometimes we have the idea that uh, awakening or practice, liberation, means some kind of fixed state. And that's not been my experience or the experience of most people I know, even some people very awake. There's still some writing that happens. There's still this oscillation or movement or change or um, the various conditions or kalesas arising, either way, the impurities. And for me, this last definition really summed it up, really, really spoke to my heart, really felt right to me. And it, and it said that to write meant to, to bring into accordance with truth. I, I think that's a lovely way to think about the Noble Eightfold Path. Right speech, to bring into accordance with truth. Right aspiration, to bring our aspiration in accordance with truth. To bring our understanding in accordance with truth. (coughs) Bhikkhu Bodhi said that the path brings the teachings to life. It translates the Dharma from a collection of abstract formulas into a continually unfolding disclosure of truth. And so this path, these ideas, these conceptual ideas, are a support for our attempt to bring our lives and our understanding, our practice, our virtue into accordance with the way things are, with the truth of the way things are, which is what dharma means. Dharma dharma means the way things are. I said this in my sitting group the other night, and I think it's good to say it here. We're not coming here to practice meditation. That's not why we're here. We're practice, we're coming here to realize the Dharma. Meditation being maybe the primary skillful <coughs> means in order to allow that to happen. But only one of the skillful means. We're here to, uh, to wake up to the truth of the way things are. And so our commitment to the path is a commitment to truth, to seeing clearly what's the truth in its mundane forms and in the most profound expressions of truth. And I think this is a very important orientation and and a key to writing ourselves when we're listening to one side or another too much that um, our orientation, our training around uh, how we orient in life is mostly we orient towards comfort. That's, that's what our training's been. That's the training of our culture. And it pervades, um, especially this country, maybe the whole world, maybe all of animal life even. Maybe it's a little hardwired in. I don't know exactly. I mean, most creatures orient towards comfort. It's not a bad thing. But if it's our main orientation, we won't awaken. That there needs to be something greater than what I want. Some orientation bigger than, oh, what's going to make me feel good right now? And comfort is very seductive even in spiritual practice. Ever notice if you've gone on a retreat up the hill, how you want to have the right cushions <laughs> and your certain stuff and make sure you have your shawl and, you know, 
What if you forgot to bring certain foods, you know? It's a big deal, the food comfort on retreat, because, you know, you don't get a lot of other goodies, right? It's pretty, pretty bare, pretty bare bones. So it, it's important to look at our, how we're orienting and what we're orienting. Now remember, in Buddhism, we're not orienting towards discomfort either. That's very important to understand. The Buddha oriented that way for quite a while as an ascetic. And he realized, oh, this doesn't, this will not bring me to the truth. And it, this is an interesting story. I just remembered that what happens is he, um, he's very weak because he's living on one grain of rice a day, which is not a lot, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it said he's so thin that he can, he can press here in his front and touch his backbone. You know, it's just, you know, he's kind of living very bare bones. And, um, but he has this memory of being in this kind of reverie of being in a child in his father's garden sitting under a rose apple tree. And that he had a kind of pleasure that was not the pleasure of desire. And that he followed that pleasure and he goes into absorption as a child. And he remembers this, and he realizes, oh, maybe this is a pleasure I don't have to be afraid of. This is a pleasure that is part of the path, is part of practice. And then he realizes, oh, we, we can take care of this body, and there's a natural joy, a natural pleasure that leads to awakening. It's not so much that I want pleasures. It's just the pleasure of being of simply being and aligning with the truth. Um, and so um, I think it's very important to look at truth and our, if we can orient towards what's true, then we begin to uh, receive many benefits from the path. The first benefit of aligning with, uh, coming into accordance with the truth is that's where true refuge is always. You know, if we, want, we take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, but really what we can take refuge in is the truth of the Buddha, of awakening, the truth of the Dharma, the way things are, the truth of our interconnectedness. And in, in a practical sense, it's the only place we can find refuge is in the truth of this moment, of this experience. So notice what it's like to feel your body again, more directly, 100% of your attention. And notice even as you gently, in a relaxed way, sense your body, you can still hear me, you can still see me, you still know the feelings you're having, of being interested or bored or curious or or um, reactive, how, whatever it is, that things can be known as you actually rest here, that the pushing away what's here, that the trying to grasp for something that's not here, that's where suffering is. But the only true refuge, even in difficulty, is to actually be present here now with things as they are. I've talked about this uh, with different teachers, Howard Cohn specific, about how to do a long retreat and how to do it with some grace. The only way to do it is to take refuge in each moment, in whatever the truth is of that moment. Tired, agitated, sleepy, happy, joyous, full of love, full of hate, whatever it is, take refuge in that. <laughs> When we take refuge in the truth of a moment, of our experience, we also immediately take refuge in it's not solid. It's impermanent. It's changing. <coughs> we begin to start to see the deeper truths, the more profound truths. <clears throat> and so to become mindful, to become present, aware, 
kindly accepting what's here, directly contactful of what's here, not as an abstract idea, not as separating from what's here, right in the middle of it, right in the middle of a breath or a feeling. But in the, right here in this very body and heart and mind, um, can't remember Joseph's first, oh, Munindraji used to say, the whole Dharma sits here. The whole Dharma is sitting in your seat. To orient to the truth, moment by moment, we learn that we can trust life with all its difficulties, with all its vicissitudes, with all the sorrows and pains, that this is what we have, are these precious moments. Whether we like them or not, whether they're good moments or bad moments, that these are opportunities to uh, be present, wakeful, and to let life teach us, to illuminate us to the truth of the way things are. <clears throat> so when we begin orienting towards truth, it frees us from orienting towards ourself. What's the truth of a situation? What's needed here? Lately in my own practice, one of the key ways that I see it comes is I think about, well, what needs to be served? And sometimes I need to be served. So I'm not separating myself out from that whole matrix. It's just really asking the question and then seeing what the truth is. Sometimes, you know, Eugene needs to be slept or fed or exercised or relaxed or vacationed. Or sometimes it's my daughter needs attention or guidance or um, money, you know, actually a lot. She's a teenager. Um, or my wife, my relationship, sometimes that needs to be served. There's sometimes clients or spirit rock needs to be served. Or, um, you know, the person walking across the street. But really to open to life and see, oh, what, what's the truth here? Not so much about what do I need, but what is the truth of what's needed, moment by moment, day by day. And it's a great relief. This is from Ashvagosha, who said, The Dharma of the Buddha does not require that one goes into homelessness or becomes a monk, resigns from the world unless one is called to do that, unless that's one's deepest truth. <clears throat> the Dharma of the Buddha does require each person to free themselves of the illusion of self, to open one's heart, to let go of desire and aversion, and to lead a life of awakening. And then whatever people do, whether they remain in the world as artisans or merchants, or they retire from the world and devote themselves to a life of religious meditation, let them put their whole heart into their task. Let them be diligent and energetic. And if they engage in life without cherishing envy or hatred, and they live in the world not a life of self, but a life of truth, then surely joy, peace, and bliss will dwell in their hearts and minds. It's, it's been a great um, beaconing light in my practice to just consider sometimes, oh, what's the truth? Rather than, what do I want? Or even, what do I need? What's the truth? doesn't have to deny what I need or what I want. Those aren't bad things. But it just brings a bigger orientation to a life of practice.
And it also points us at who we are in essence. That we are a manifestation or an expression of the truth. We are not separate from the truth. Suzuki Roshi put it this way, quite lovely. He said, human beings are a temporal expression of the truth. A temporal expression of the truth. We appear and disappear like everything else. This magical, mysterious truth, which includes everything, everything we know. And everything we know comes and goes. Ken Wilber put it this way. He said, spiritual practice is not something we do for 20 minutes a day or a couple hours a day. It's not something we do once a week on Wednesday mornings or Monday evenings. He said, spiritual practice is not one activity among other human activities. It is the ground of all human activities, their source and their validation. It is a prior commitment to truth, lived, breathed, intuited, and practiced 24 hours a day in every form. This is our life, is to realize the truth and to see that our lives can become an embodiment an expression of that truth. And so the Buddha expounded this four noble truths. Sometimes uh, I've heard them described as the four ennobling truths, which is a little more accurate. It points to the process, verb-like orientation of the four truths. That when we practice with the four truths, they are ennobling. Ennobling meaning they allow us to realize what's true. So they're not proclamations. They're more lived dialectics. They're to be engaged with fully. So just to review, the four truths, suffering is to be understood That's a very alive process to keep looking at what is suffering? What is my suffering? What are other people's suffering? And what happens as we begin to understand suffering, to see the cause of suffering and let go. And not just let go, not just get stopped there, not just, excuse me, not just see suffering and see the cause of suffering, but to realize cessation, to realize the end of suffering, to recognize that there's suffering, and then there's a moment when suffering ends. And just that moment to actually recognize it. Sometimes Buddhists are really good at recognizing suffering and not so good at recognizing non-suffering. Especially because often non-suffering is very simple, very subtle, it's no big deal, actually. We usually expect some kind of big deal. We have, a, we have a Hollywood idea of what the end of suffering should look like. And it's really like just an eight mil, old eight millimeter, the end of suffering. You know, the absence of grasping, of identifying, of clinging, is the end of suffering. And so we can look at how this happens, you know, by being with the truth of the way things are, not rejecting our experience, not rejecting our desires or our wants or our preferences, but practicing with them, opening to the truth of a moment of desire, a moment of aversion, learning how Mindfulness brings the way things are into the light of awareness so that we begin to see that actually we can't hold on to anything. That's the truth of the way things are. 
the idea that we can hold on to something is a little bit diluted. Have you noticed? There's nothing we can hold on to. And then you'll notice the mind trying to hold on to stuff, you know, like it's possible. Based on our conditioning. But we do, we, everybody knows this, that, you know, everybody's had the experience of freedom, of a moment of non-grasping, of non-clinging. And those moments are precious, are precious in the sense they change our whole life. They change our whole orientation towards life. Slowly at first, sometimes dramatically, but usually for most of us it's slow. But it's, it's when we begin to see that, oh, this is a spiritual life. We're not, some, somewhere I read, we're not human beings having uh, a spiritual life. We're spiritual beings having a human life. That that is the ground of our experience. And so when we begin to realize the wisdom that is to be um, tasted in the four truths, the freedom that's possible in recognizing suffering and letting go of its origins, realizing cessation, our lives are altered, our lives are changed. And we really enter the path in that way. This is the alchemy of suffering, the alchemy of the four truths. And it's, 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 a, it's both a striking and a simple difference. I'll read to you a little from Stephen Batchelor talking about this, about the, when we have a moment of freedom, of just letting go, of just being, without wanting or not wanting, without having to do anything to justify our existence, and just enjoy the pleasure of being, of this temporal expression of the truth which we are. He said, the difference between then and now is like the idea of sex and the first experience of it. You remember that? Remember pre-sex, all the ideas? And then you have sex, and it's, you know, it's a, quite a big deal. And it's also like what all animals, you know, all creatures do. It's also not a big deal at the same time. As Stephen says, he says, on the one hand, the act is momentous and an irrevocable step. On the other hand, it is just part of life. And that's a very important piece here that he's pointing at. It's a big deal, a moment of freedom, and it's also just part of life. It's nothing special in that sense, as Suzuki Roshi would say. So the act, the simple act of realizing cessation for a moment impacts us tremendously. Because we come into alignment that's with something that's so basic that we've all intuited it. We've all known is possible, that freedom is possible, that wholeness is possible, that understanding is possible. We felt it either directly or we felt the subterranean movement towards that, our desire to awaken and know the truth. Again, from Hamid Ali, he says, there is an inherent drive towards truth, an inherent desire to feel fulfilled fulfilled, real, and free. The impetus towards the realization is in all of us. It begins with the first stirrings of consciousness and continues throughout life whether or not we are directly aware of it. As maturity grows into wisdom, this task gains precedence over all other tasks in life progressively becoming the center that orients, supports, and gives meaning to one's life, ultimately encompassing all of one's experience. This is when we become the path fully. We see that this is really what's important, and then we want to express that in any and every area of our life that we find ourselves whether it's with family, with friends, 
at work, community, politics, wherever it is. Stephen Batchelor says it this way. He says, when we taste the truth, we discover the resolve to cultivate this path and it becomes unwavering, yet entirely natural. It is simply what we do. Now, here's a point that Stephen makes that's very important. That um, we may have a moment of freedom, and then we'll watch all our conditioning come back in the next moment, right? I mean, the, the, the great example is you have this experience of emptiness or selflessness, and then you want to tell everybody how selfless you are, how great your experience was. You don't think in that moment, oh, I'm being totally deluded. You think, no, I've got to tell everybody. <laughs> It's quite, you know, our conditioning is strong. And it's really why we want to be very, why kindness is so important in practice. That we can't be too compassionate about our conditioning. Because we all are conditioned deeply. But what happens when we begin to see that with kindness, that we see there's a moment of awakening, a moment of understanding, a moment of realization, and then there's moments of non-realization. That um, I think we begin to see awakening in its proper context. And again, from Stephen Batchelor, he says, we have not been elevated to the lofty heights of awakening. Awakening has been knocked off its pedestal into the turmoil and ambiguity of everyday life. I'm going to read that again. We have not been elevated to the lofty heights of awakening. Awakening has been knocked off its pedestal into the turmoil and ambiguity of everyday life. This path encompasses everything that we do it is an authentic way of being in the world. We have such a tendency to idealize awakening. That it's somewhere other. That it's somewhere above. That it's something grand. And it's such a beautiful understanding that he posits here. That no, we're not lifted up to some lofty height. Awakening falls into the middle of this, here, now. That we see the possibility for awakening in every area of our life. Everything becomes grist for the mill in the truest sense. Now, uh, saying that, I also want to say one caveat, which is that's a wonderful idea, and it's a very difficult practice. It's a very difficult practice. The reason people go to monasteries is because there is so much support for realizing that in every moment. There's a lot less support in our lives. And so it really calls upon our resolve and our diligence and our effort, not in a tense way, but in a wholehearted sense, to practice as householders and, and lay people. It really means a very deep commitment and a willingness to look at the truth of where am I at with my commitment? And with some regularity, not every moment, but you know, every few months, you know, how am I doing? Where am I orienting towards comfort rather than the truth? How am I holding the idea, oh, I'm practicing all the time, but you know, I practice and then I'm hanging out. Not that hanging out is bad, but can we practice while we're hanging out? That, that's, it's, it's a beautiful um, paradox because it doesn't matter what we do. It's how we approach it, how we live it. Can we see it as practice? No, no, I don't care. Hang out, work hard, whatever you want. You know, whatever's right, whatever's true for you. Then we have a life of practice. 
last quote from Stephen Batchelor about the cultivation of this path. He says, to cultivate these diverse elements of right understanding or right speech or right concentration, to cultivate these elements of our existence means to nurture them as one would a garden. Just as a garden needs to be protected, tended, cared for, so do ethical integrity, focused awareness, and understanding. No matter how deep our insight into the empty and contingent nature of things, that alone will do little to cultivate these qualities. Each of these areas in life becomes a challenge, an injunction to act. There is no room for complacency, for they all bear a tag that declares, cultivate me. And then, your practice becomes so much bigger than meditation. Focused awareness becomes part of your practice. Cultivating understanding becomes a whole practice. Cultivating aspiration, motivation becomes a whole practice. Cultivating ethical conduct is a whole practice. Let's sit for a minute. Actually, let's not sit for a minute. (laughs) What time do you end? 11. So let's talk for a few more minutes. Questions? Question. As I go through my life, and there are all these challenges and difficulties, and I sometimes find myself unmoored. Unmoored. Unmoored, Mm -hmm. yeah. And um, what comes up for me, and what comes up for me um, from my practice is this desire and intent for kindness and compassion both to myself and others. Mm -hmm. So that becomes a place for me to come back to. Mm -hmm. And to ask myself if in the doing or the exploring of whatever, those elements are present for me. And if they're not present for me, what actually is going on that keeps them from Mm -hmm. being present? Mm -hmm. And so for me, um, it isn't always available or mm-hmm. even yeah, available. Wisdom is not always available to me. That just happens to be the condition I find myself in. Mm-hmm. But having something, you know, like an opening to kindness, compassion is more available to me and gives me mm-hmm. at least the spaciousness or the room mm-hmm. to be able to be more present. Why do you think that's not wisdom? <laughs> um, well, I don't think it's that um, the part of me that mm-hmm. doesn't recognize it as wisdom right. is that it um, doesn't lead to action or anything. Mm-hmm. It more leads to uh, <coughs> falling into a deeper sense of um, presence and awareness. What? And I suppose there is this little ego part of me mm-hmm. that is attached to wanting to have some clarity about action. Uh-huh. Well, well, let me slow down here. Why do you think that's not action? Non-action is also action. That's the piece. Yeah. And so notice what happens in your direct experience if you do recognize the wisdom. So what you're describing is um, two, two pieces that I heard, which is... Um, the uh, wisdom of compassion and the wisdom of investigation. And investigation is a very powerful practice. It's it's Any time you feel lost or confused or unmoored, you can just investigate what's happening now. What's going on? What is this experience? And that immediately, first of all, brings you into greater awareness and The only way you can do it is if you're kind to yourself. If you're judging yourself, you actually won't see what's true. And so they actually go hand in hand. It all sounds like wisdom to me, to my ears, truly. I I don't say that lightly, (laughs) partly because we often fail to recognize our wisdom, and that is delusion. Remember? The cessation of suffering is, impo- is really important to see it. 
to see wisdom, to see our skillfulness. You know, it's really important to see our unskillfulness, our deludedness, our ignorance. That's really important. It's equally important to see our skillfulness, our compassion, our wisdom. That's very important. If you miss one, you're missing the whole show. Thank you. I just want to add for myself and I hope everyone a little bit. It's the Woody Allen syndrome. Which who, is? Who would listen to my wisdom. Who would listen to my wisdom? <laughs> I, wait a second. Now, Woody's, a lot of people have listened to Woody's wisdom. <laughs> he wouldn't. He's, he's so wise, he's made a zillion dollars off of his wisdom. Come on. <laughs> he, knows how, he knows how to how to make a joke go a long way, you know? I, mean, that, that I, I understand what you're saying. It's true. But there's a way we devalue ourselves by not actually acknowledging our wisdom. And it's not, you're not doing anybody any service by doing that. It's actually a loss to the world in some sense. And, you know, it doesn't mean we still don't make mistakes. Acknowledging our, our understanding truly means to also acknowledge our limitations, that they're, they're, they're one. They're not separate. We see, oh, here I understand, here I don't understand, without any judgment either way, like, oh, I'm so great, I understand, you know, although that'll come, you know, we, we want to be, we don't want to deny that, uh, kind of the egos um, wanting to eat everything, every experience. Um, and we want to be able to acknowledge our limitation without the least bit of judgment about it. Now, since everybody has a lot of judgment, we also need to acknowledge that, right? <laughs> without learning how to disidentify from it, really practicing and seeing this is not true. The judgments are not true, even though sometimes they feel true or we think they're not true. And I'm talking about pejorative judgment. I'm not talking about making an objective assessment. There's a famous story in the Buddhist teaching. Um, I know Sylvia talked about it here once because she stole it from me. <laughs> she, she, we, were teaching, we were teaching a couple years ago, and I gave this talk. And the next day she came back from being here. She said, oh, Eugene, thank you so much. I gave your whole talk down there. <laughs> But it's about uh, Bahia of the bark cloth. And Bahia is a, a wandering ascetic. And at some point he says, well, where am I at on the path? To himself. And in the language of the times, he, uh, uh, some understanding comes to him in the form of a deva, a heavenly being, who says, you're not there. And you're not even doing the right practice. So what's beautiful is Bahia has no judgment about himself. Basically, he just says, well, where is the right practice and how can I get there? And the, the deva, the heavenly being, or the understanding or inner guidance comes and says, there's a Buddha. Boom. Bahia just drops what he's doing and goes for the Buddha. No judgment, no harshness, no criticism, no being mean to himself. He's just, you know, he's willing to see what's true and respond appropriately because he wants to come into accordance with the truth. So, we want to see what's true about our wisdom and our limitations both. Very important. And it's changing. It's not, don't worry, it's not going to get stuck. It's not like, you know, you're going to be, you know, have this much wisdom and this much limitation forever. It'll switch, you know. <laughs> it's alive. One more question, comment, reaction, epiphany. <laughs> Please. How, how would you uh, assess our sort of national goal of the pursuit of happiness? How would you quantify that in the light of what you preach? In the light of what I preach? <laughs> <laughs> I think I just have to sit with this idea that I preach. <laughs> oh. I haven't heard it put that way before. Um, I actually love that phrase of pursuit of happiness. Let's just look very carefully at what creates true happiness. You know, 
it's nice to have nice things and this and that. I don't see that they give lasting happiness, true happiness. I'm more interested in something uh, a little beyond that, personally. I mean, not that I don't like things. Things are great, you know. You know, whatever it is. But, but the, I think the Buddha is pointing at a happiness that's not based on conditions. And that's, that seems like well worth our pursuit. Absolutely. But the pursuit is not out there. The pursuit is right here. Where that's to be discovered is where you sit. So I think it's really good, and I'd be willing to talk to the Congress about that, or <laughs> the President, or whoever, you know, so that it's clearer for our, our public policy. Let's sit for a minute before we end. May the sincerity of our practice here this morning bring us into accordance with the truth. May our efforts to awaken, to understand, to live a life that benefits all beings, may it come to fruition May it be realized as we go throughout our day. May all our efforts, may our very lives be a benefit to all beings. May the truth set us free and set all beings free. May the truth awaken us and awaken all beings. May the truth reveal the great heart of compassion for ourselves and for all beings. Thank you. It's really lovely to be here with you all. You know, I realized I forgot to introduce myself. <laughs> kind of starts happening after a while. You just, but I am Eugene Cash. I'm the, one of the teachers here at Spirit Rock and also the staff teacher. Um, and I just want to announce a couple things that are coming up that I'll be doing. One is a day of mindfulness in Qigong um, with uh, Dr. Bingkong who, Dr. Who, great name, <laughs> who's been my Qigong teacher for the past couple of years. And is quite a wonderful, sweet guy, very wise. Um, and I've just loved doing Qigong as one of my practices. And I, you know, as I was pointing to, alluding to in the talk, I think of practice as having a palette of practices. Sitting practice, movement practice, study practice, metta practice, um, practice of service, um, on and on. That really weaving a life of practice. And so if you're interested, Qigong is a very powerful uh, movement meditation that's very beneficial for health at the same time. Um, so um, we're going to do that. It should be really fun to do that with him on January 13th. And then we have a really special retreat, residential retreat, happening up at the upper campus from the 23rd to the 28th, which will be mindfulness and inquiry. And so it'll be, we'll have a formal Vipassana retreat 
with two formal periods of inquiry practice where we'll be teaching you inquiry, how to do inquiry, which is really the use of body, heart, mind, thought, and speech in a mindful and investigative way. And um, it has two benefits. Um, one is that you learn inquiry. You learn how to investigate into your experience in a contemplative way, uh, not so much in an analytic way. But also, you learn how to speak from mindfulness. And this is something I've seen that we're a little lax of in our community, that people don't know how to stay mindful and present while they're speaking. And um, this is somewhere where you be able to practice it in a context of silence. And um, I, I think it's one of the missing pieces for our community. And I'm doing more to bring other things. Later next year, there'll be a fellow named Greg Kramer who's been teaching what he calls insight dialogue. And I've met with him and talked to him, and I can tell it's the same powerful um, possibility of teaching people how to be mindful, not in a mental way, but in a direct and immediate way while you're speaking and listening. And it really transforms the idea of householder practice to learn how to do that. So please come and join us. I'm really excited about this retreat. Thank you. Please take good care. Where is your weekly uh, sitting group? My weekly sitting group's in San Francisco from uh, 7 to 9 on Sundays at the Unitarian Church um, uh, at um, Geary and Franklin's beautiful church in San Francisco. We have a wonderful group, probably 50 people or so every week. And please come join us whenever. Sunday night. <laughs> seven in the morning. If you want seven in the morning, you have to go to Zen Center. I'm sorry. <laughs> thank you. Okay, thank you. Remember that you have to turn right when you leave Spirit Rock. Please drive careful. It's, the right way. it's in accordance with the truth. <laughs> Could I have this one? Sure. Thank Please you. take. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. You live in the city? Right here. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Okay. 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 San Francisco Zen Center. Uh-huh. Okay. But uh, this, this is a pleasure. So, carry on, carry okay. on. Thank you.